Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Last time, we left off with Peter Behrens's staging of a theatrical pageant at the opening ceremony of the Darmstadt Artists' Colony, which served as a formative precedent for Walter Detterman's Bauhaus settlement and Grotheus's ideas about the glass architecture of the future. Grotheus had been an apprentice to Behrens, but in 1901, the later master was still a junior architect, assisting the Viennese designer Josef Maria Olbrich. Behrens had recently branched out from painting and graphic design. Perhaps Wanting to assure the Grand Duke sponsoring the project that the colony was, even at the outset, of great influence, and certainly in part as thanks and to assure the Duke that he had made a sound investment, the ambitious designer staged this pageant on the steps of the Ernst Ludwig House, shown as the last image on our previous episode's page. The building which Ulbricht had designed with some assistance from Behrens, was a mixed-use artist's studio that included apartments, done very much in the style of Ulbricht's more famous secession building. The white edifice displays a flat-roofed main façade that obscures the building's pitched roof on the rear side. The windowless public front, likely facing due south, contrasts with the heavily glazed rear elevation, likely due north, that would have let in diffused, indirect light to the studios. The main doorway is framed by a characteristic horseshoe arch. From inside its shadow box recesses glitter triangular and circular decorative motifs in gold leaf and white laid upon an ochre background done in shapes that look like a cross between clouds and abstracted vegetation. Flanking the entry, a short distance in front of the spring points of the arch, stand two six-meter-tall statues, a man and a woman, who gaze at each other across the broad span of the steps. Between them, Along the path of this gaze, a motto is written over the entrance. In Vienna, Olbrich's building had the words above its door in gold, Der Zeit ihre Kunst, der Kunst ihre Freiheit. To every age its art, to every art its freedom. With Ver Sacrum, Latin for sacred spring to the left of the entry. On the arch over the Darmstadt doorway, built three years after the Vienna secession work, is an arc of words which currently sits on the white wall in raised white letters. Seine Welt zeige der Künstler, die niemals war noch jemals sein wird. The artist indicates his world that never was and always is yet to be. 
a phrase composed by playwright Hermann Barr. The door of the Ernst Ludwig House, the place of transition, is literally a framing device pointing out to a visitor that art itself, through the instance of an artist's actions, is never a steady state, but always a return to steady action. When the colony held its opening ceremony, the long set of rising stairs to this doorway, not dissimilar to an approach of a classical temple, served, much as these entries did in ancient times, as the public setting for a theatrical pageant. A crowd had gathered, chief among them the Grand Duke. A choral poem, written by Georg Fuchs and directed by Behrens, bore the title Das Zeichen, The Sign. And it is in the performance of it that we see how Jugendstil's brief life presented a mutation of Art Nouveau into Expressionism. The choral poem is a pageant of transformation. It pulls away from art for art's sake the Keatsian sentiment of Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. To dive into a messianic search for something beyond the earth, something grander, along the lines of Friedrich Schiller's words, Seid umschlungen Millionen, diesen Kuss der ganzen Welt, Brüder, über uns Sternenzelt muss ein lieber Vater wohnen. Be embraced, millions. This kiss of the whole world, brothers, above the starry tent must live a loving father. These phrases were famously placed within the choral to the fourth movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony a theme of the 14th Vienna Secession Exhibition, to which Klimt dedicated his Beethoven frieze. That exhibition was held in the same year as the Darmstadt Colony's opening, and strains of the Schiller can be detected in the words of Fuchs' choral poem. As we have covered in earlier episodes, a decade later, Motesius and Loos, in Germany and Austria respectively, would remark on how ornament had fallen away. Motesius evocatively described this as a Wechselbalg, a changeling casting off its molting feathers. The forward-looking that the early Bauhaus engaged in was of the same momentum and spirit of this expressionist impulse announced by Peter Behrens's staged production. A man and woman, living versions of the colossal statues, exclaimed how they wished to see their labor and toil fulfilled. A chorus recited a paean pleading for renewal. Then, at the center 
of all this, a herald arrived to spread the gospel of what would soon become a hallmark of expressionism. Transfigured people transforming the world. The herald presented the patron, the Grand Duke of Hesse, with a large gem of faceted glass representing a diamond, the namesake Zeichen of the pageant. Wie der Staub, Gewalt besiegelt, Demand wird aus blindem Kern, Fest geformt, den Wechsel spiegelt, Licht in Licht und Stern in Stern. As the dust, sealed by force, becomes diamond from blind core, the hard-formed metamorphosis mirrors light in light, star in star. The diamond crystal was proclaimed to be the symbol of new life, recursively reflecting energy to form a new age of young souls. Of course, what rises also falls. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto the power who gave it. Life and creation versus death and destruction is a play at various scales between the poles of entropy and organization. However, a form of life, or a mode of organization, is most characteristically acknowledged as itself during the middle course of existence, as something is being created, or as it is being destroyed, it would become more difficult to recognize what that thing is, or to describe it as such. The joy at the end of the performance is that the time of creation is nigh. The ensemble announces in unison that the gleaming of the diamond symbol has proclaimed it. So what was it time for? The herald who bore the jewel had urged the chorus and the audience not to kneel, but to embrace each other and become like gods. Why do you kneel? Arise, create, and clasp. Whomever knows of this shall never tremble. You should grasp, you should give the motion, measure, and gestalt. But what measures are these? What form and motion should be created? No one knew, nor did the play pretend to know it either. Though Behrens had very strong feelings already about curved versus straight lines, the pageant advanced no formal ideology. And as this was all taking place, the words above the door that led into the artist's studio read, His world, that never was, and always is yet to be. 
as Detterman's Bauhaus settlement plan picked up on the diamond forms and geometry. This symbolism and sentiment of transformation and continual development was, to an extent, also adopted. Even the ritual of pageant performed for a patron was repeated. Wolfgang Pent writes that, at the topping-out party of the Zomerfeld House held in December 1920, Adolf Meyer arranged for a ceremony involving a procession and choral chanting. Again, as with Behrens, the junior architect was in charge of ceremonials. Stepping beyond how the man and woman characters of the Darmstadt ceremony represented opposites after a common resolution, the Bauhaus pageant used choral intonation of opposites to illustrate the fact of a new space. A series of two-part phrases of opposites were chanted, ground and man next to wife and spirit body and movement versus stillness and mass, space and ground plan next to elevation. These were all generative pairings of opposites, and the chant of each pair, as the bonfire glowed in the night, and the ceremonial garland was hoisted by Bauhaus students dressed in traditional Carpenters' Guild uniforms, was followed by repetition of a three-part refrain. Ring, circle, garland. Ring, circle, garland. Ludwig Berger, an author and friend of architect Bruno Taut, was present and murmured in reaction, because being... Being flows in three ways. Perhaps going beyond a nomic pronouncement said in the dark, Herr Berger's observation does hold some important meaning for design. He may well have been referring to the platonic ideas of being and becoming, so lovingly studied by Goethe. This pair interacts through the creative force within a demiurgic space of genius, the sphere of becoming. Mental concept as being, existing in past and present, combines with raw material in creative action, the synthetic sphere of becoming. What is being transformed, then, and therefore living, that which is neither perfect order nor total chaos, is becoming. The doorway text of the Darmstadt Studios presents this triad in the realm of art with the artist pointing to the world that is always becoming. In the tripartite chant, Ring Circle Garland, the object of a ring inspires the perfect 
Euclidean idea of a circle. Here, sense input triggers the realm of ideas. The evergreen trees provide raw material for a garland, and these, in applying understanding through craft, are made into a circle, as an act of material becoming. The central element, the mystical, creative space where this bridging occurs, is the sphere of becoming, what Plato called the Chora. And perhaps this is precisely what was being honored by the Bauhaus's choral chants. Beyond the formal references and the ritual practice, the future orientation of the two generations is almost identical. 1901 and 1920 both wanted to usher humanity into a new era, using art as the vessel, but both were equally unsure of what this future looked like. It was with a wise humility that Gropius proclaimed wood, and not jeweled glass, as the material of the present. The appropriate forms of the glass future were held to be not yet understood or realized. Gropius had stressed that only when the new and presumably reformed sense of building had pervaded across the culture as a whole would the true glass architecture come to be. So we are not at all living in the glass future that was anticipated. The anorexic skin of steel and concrete skyscrapers, or the oversized aquaria that so daringly attempted to deliver a glass future, leave us with a geometrically imposed past that could have well and easily been otherwise. We propose that, if one is attentive to how the new spirit of form pursued by the expressionist ritual arose, two aspects stick out. First, the system's thinking inherent in a cybernetic approach to design, exemplified by how a diamond is cut, and second, the almost communal celebration of solid faith in the pursuit of future forms, while being concurrently aware that they're unknown. What was once united in the symbol of the geologically grown yet geometrically cut diamond fell apart. The decisive turn that the modernist movement was about to take, one so severe that it would deepen a latent ideological divide between the organic and the geometric, arrived when it was found that strict Euclidean forms were greatly amenable to industrial capacity. This was part of the force behind Theo van Doesburg's attack on Bauhaus Expressionism as being directionless. Ignorance of future results is a symptom of operating empirically. 
which can appear at times to be directionless. Yet, far too often, the application of familiar and existing frameworks, as with purist geometry, becomes a reactionary move that blinds us to the facts, surprising and law-breaking, that honest empirical research would present us with. And it is here in our narrative and our analysis that we have arrived at a crossroads. Behind us, the two houses of the Bauhaus's first years, Zomerfeld and the House am Horn. By the early 1920s, Expressionism had survived the strain of war, but it had also become solipsistic as it was besieged on every front by de Stiel, Dada, and Constructivism, all of which sent ambassadors to Weimar, each wishing to convert the new institution to its own ideas of what the future should be. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, the publicly shamed Frank Lloyd Wright, who had so powerfully inspired many of the European moderns, was struggling to keep a roof over his head. By 1924, Louis Sullivan, the man with whom we began this podcast, was, after launching Wright's career and arguably igniting the modernist movement, renting an attic in Chicago and drinking himself to death amidst the biggest construction boom since the Great Fire of 1871. But this did not happen before he had published a prophetic final work of staggering beauty and depth that is still being treated with the slightness of a coffee-table book, while the sad fact being that Sullivan's last essay is still ahead of its time. Our podcast's next steps can progress in a number of ways, and of course we have our own ideas, but we would like to hear from you. What stories of architecture do you want us to cover, analyze, or criticize? Do you have thoughts on what we've shared so far? Please send your comments to info at lapsuslima.com. That's L-A-P-S-U-S. L-I-M-A dot com. We have some changes and big things planned for this podcast and would love to be able to keep you in the loop. So drop us a line. And thank you, as always, for listening.